Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Uh, good afternoon. Hello. Welcome. Glad you're here. I'm glad to be here with you. Um, we're going to talk about Romans more today. And uh, can I just say that Romans is a really difficult text to preach from? Like everybody who's gone so far and everybody who's to go, bless you in your endeavors. Um, I spent several days just staring at Romans 6 this week, being like, I don't know what the heck I'm supposed to do with this. Um, and as I'll talk about in a bit, Romans has been taught in some pretty particular ways that have gone unquestioned in many circles. And we kind of just assume that it's just a messy, deeply theological text, which it is. Um, and so we just find it in that space where it's daunting. I think we just find it easier to simply teach the old thing rather than look for an alternative narrative or see maybe something different that's sitting there. Yet gradually, as I spent time in it this week, I started to see just how deeply profound uh, and relatable the text is. Um, and so I hope that we're able to make some of that connection together today. Um, but for context, first, Paul begins Romans 6. We'll show it in a moment. But Paul begins Romans 6 with the same structure as he does in Romans chapter 4. He begins with a short question, basically saying, what shall we say? And then he poses a longer one, which he will argue against. And in this case, Paul asks us, should we continue in sin in order that grace might abound? And then Paul does this again, kind of like halfway through the chapter. And he says, what then? Should we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Paul is having an argument with an imaginary friend. The commentary that many of us are using throughout this series called Romans Disarmed does the exact same thing where like the author poses questions that we as the readers might be thinking of um, and then uh, and then they kind of answer it. So Paul's doing the same thing here and his answer to these posed questions is emphatically no, not at all. So Paul throughout this passage is trying to convey what it does mean to live under grace according to the way of Jesus because we live under the dominion of grace, not sin. But what does that really mean? And Paul concludes that Jesus' death and his resurrection imply our own death and our own resurrection with him. So we are set free for a new way uh, and for a new life. He talks about things like sin and living free a lot throughout this text. But what is Paul particularly speaking of and what does it mean to live free? Paul is speaking to a, a Roman context, which is important for us to understand, um, where there was rampant sexual and physical violence. There would be horrific economic oppression that left many people hungry, homeless, and powerless. He's speaking to not only these situations, but the lies and the corruption that, uh, that the system is keeping people in this way of life. So now he's calling the church to ways of life instead of death, ways that uh, serve people's good, not their bad. Um, there's a book called Ambassadors of Reconciliation by... I don't even remember their first name. Something Myers and something ends. Is it Pete ends and Ched Myers? Chet Myers? I don't know. Um, but they have a quote in this book. And it says, um, talking about Paul and some of his letters, it says, Paul was serious about the church's adamant opposition to Roman imperial society. Yet he refused to see this as a strictly ethnic strategy of resistance among Jews. He expected Gentile Christians too 
to defect from their own entitlements and loyalties. He believed that, this, that his small Christian house gatherings sprinkled around the Eastern Empire were to model an alternative society liberated from patronage, hierarchy, economic disparity, and racial hostility. Dr. King, two millennia later, called this vision, uh, this the vision of a beloved community. It is such a community that Paul believed Christ had called into being, a new creation, in which everything old has passed away and everything has become new. And key to this text, and Paul's point, is the concept of righteousness and justice. Two words that are often linked together in the Old Testament as separate words and then become the same word in the New Testament. And Paul repeats these words a lot as they pertain to the life of the church and how people ought to react and treat each other. And our, identifi our, our identification with Jesus implies ways of justice. So let's get a little bit nerdy for a moment. Um, in the book of Isaiah, for example, I think I have slides for this. Perfect. It's up there. In the book of Isaiah, as just one example in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for justice, mishpat, appears 42 times. Of those 42 times in Isaiah, the Hebrew word tzedakah, which means righteousness, also appears 17 times. Um, am I getting that right, Nikayla? Just say yes. You're the Isaiah expert. Perfect. They're borderline inseparable in the, in the Old Testament. So we're going to look at a few of these instances where these words appear together in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 9, verse 7, he will establish and uphold his kingdom with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. There's another one. Isaiah 33, 5, the Lord is exalted. He dwells on high. Uh, he filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Uh, one more. Uh, 56, 1, the Sabbath text, thus says the Lord, maintain justice and do what is right. For soon my salvation will come and my deliverance or righteousness will be revealed. I could keep going, um, but I think you get the point. The justice and righteousness are intricately linked together in the Old Testament. In our passage, though, we're dealing with a different language. We're talking in Greek. And in Greek, righteousness and justice are the same word, dikaios. And in verse 7 uh, of Romans 6, when it says, For whoever has died is freed from sin, the word to be set free is, guess what? Justice. And so if you'll indulge me for one more moment as I nerd out about Greek, the word is in the perfect tense of the verb, meaning it indicates past action with continuing results. We have been set free for justice, and we continue to live free for justice. Dying with Christ and living now anew with Christ is justice, as we then exude justice ourselves. Okay, and get this. The use of the, the word here is defined as to cause someone to be released from personal or institutional claims that are no longer considered pertinent or valid to be made free or pure. It's a change in status for everybody. It's a new life. So if we've been set free from sin for justice, what are we talking about? Well, from a young age, I was taught, like many of you, that this passage was specifically calling me out for my personal sin. Lust, sinner. Lying, sinner. Disobedient to your parents, Sinner. Masturbation? Sinner. This could go on for pages, and I bet if I asked each one of you to contribute something to this list, you could, and we could go on and on. 
And the result was endless waves of shame. You start to believe that you're this messed up human that Jesus looks at and just shakes his head with disappointment. So we start to think that Paul is calling that 15-year-old or whatever out for their horribly sinful habits. And if Jesus died and rose again, it was so that you would stop doing each of those things. And if you keep doing them, well, we don't even want to think about the consequences. Fear runs rampant in the minds of those who believe that Paul and Jesus are just calling you out for this. If you don't repent fast enough, you're going to go to hell. And we become fearful of the God that we love and just try to be good, whatever that really means. Because of the church tradition I grew up in, baptism was an inevitable part of my Christian journey. However, out of a slight fear of water due to an oddly traumatic incident uh, when I was a child and took swimming lessons, I put it off for as long as I could. Uh, but eventually, when I was 20 years old, I think, I relented. Um, and a pastor friend of mine who did baptize me, he, he told me um, that I would be, and I quote, a weapon against the enemy if I got baptized. Otherwise, it was implied, I would be complicit in Satan's schemes against humanity. When I prepped my testimony to share in front of this 1,200-person congregation, my pastor friend insisted that I tell everyone how I had struggled with pornography as a teenager. And I did that. Like, I got up in front of a megachurch, and I admitted something that every teenager and many adults there were also doing, and I just proclaimed it with a giant sign on my forehead saying, shameful sinner. Meanwhile, the entire church looked on approvingly, as I was admitting this like tragic thing, while they sat silently living in their participation with systemic sin, many of them also doing the very things that I had just confessed to. It was this, it was if I had been taught and fully believed that Jesus was going to return like the Kool-Aid man through the wall, come to take me home and catch this shameful 15-year-old boy, completely missing the point of the gospel as this like all-knowing God just declares in astonishment, like what the heck are you doing? All because of my pastor and flawed understandings of sin in Romans 6. And I bought into that. I really did. The first sermon I ever taught um, was like before I started at Ambrose. Um, and I was given 20 minutes for a Bible study at Camp Camisol, like the Alliance Camp, um, for like one Wednesday morning. I was given 20 minutes. And like any good preacher, I took 45. And, oh gosh, it was on Romans. I was given free reign to choose whatever I wanted. And I chose something on Romans. Uh, it was, I think it was supposed to be about identity. And I'm like, yeah, that's in Romans. Um, and so I did that. And it was awful. Um, I have a recording of it. No, you cannot see it. Because uh, now all I want to do is delete it. Uh, the only feedback I got after the fact was that I referred to the Holy Spirit as an it, not a he. Uh, and Bible School 101 is never referred to the Holy Spirit as anything but he. Uh, that was all the feedback I got. Um, I'm also pretty sure, actually, Cam, I think you were there. It was just, it was great, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm also pretty sure I just threw a bunch of like theological verbiage in onto a piece of paper and thought it was profound. Um, and I remember using the word grafted, as in like grafted into an inheritance or something like that. Still don't know what that means, but I did it. Now, I don't think I like specifically was shaming anybody for anything in that sermon, but I'd certainly bought into that tox those toxic ideas that I'd been taught about Romans and continued them. 
Um, if you want subtle, just like plug for a book and something you should listen to or read, um, Pete Holmes, a comedian, has a book that kind of explores much the same upbringing in the evangelical church. And it's hilarious and profound and, and devastating to read or listen to. So go listen to Pete Holmes. It's magical. But with all that said, what about systemic sin? Where was that in all of this? It seemed as if the only thing God cared about was whether we were careful about our sexual habits as shameful teenagers or how much money we gave to the church as adults. Yet there's a key missing component that we miss when this is what we're taught. No wonder we don't like reading through Romans. It just seems like it's deeply theological and profoundly condemning. But Paul is more interested in calling people out for something else. Systemic sin and the ways in which we participate in it. So I stood in front of that congregation, confessing my own personal shame. Meanwhile, every person in that room was participating in some way in systemic sin and didn't even acknowledge it. I didn't acknowledge it. And now I get it. Systemic issues are often so massive that we shudder at the thought of challenging it. Do we actually believe that we can conquer systemic sin? It's overwhelming. Or we could just keep buying things we don't need and benefiting from the genocide of other people and uploading or upholding the status quo. Well, that's just the way things are, we're often taught, or we'll say. And some of us gathered here a couple weeks ago to watch um, the Highway of Tears documentary for Truth and Reconciliation Day. And when we acknowledge that there are over like 300 missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, it can seem like nothing's going to change or that it's just like too big of something that we can actually have a, a part in. So we're going to read through the first half of Romans 6, but I want us to hear something different than what we heard growing up. Instead of imputing that like personal piety and shame that we've all felt at some point because of this text, I want each of us to hear Paul speaking about systemic sin. It changes things if we read it through that lens and not just from this like one perspective of it's just about me. Um, so it's on the screen. You can read along with me. Romans 6, 1 to 14. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may increase? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed so we might no longer be enslaved to sin. And here's that verse. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey their desires. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. 
Righteousness is about piety. And we've confused that like personal piety with a, a list of things that we just don't do and we just avoid. But justice, on the other hand, is about systemic justice and being an alternative people with an alternative economy, an alternative way of celebrating diversity. So we grew up thinking that things like masturbation were sinful, so our grandparents wouldn't do it, but they refused to drink from the same water fountain as a black person. They rode different buses, and they used different bathrooms. That generation also had no problem with forced assimilation via Indian boarding schools, residential schools. How about the fact that my parents didn't say cuss words at all when I grew up, except for one time when my mom did, which I deserved it, so it was fine. <laughs> That's all good. But their pursuit of wealth at the cost of the environment and on the indigenous land wasn't even on their radar. We wouldn't go shopping on Sundays because that's what good Christians do on the Sabbath day, but we wouldn't actively make a difference for people who couldn't actually take a day off. We lounged in our big house while people were without food on the street, and we didn't think twice about it. We don't watch R-rated movies, but we were okay with condemning queer people from church. We are part of the problem. But the gospel has got to be about more than how to avoid these overly embellished personal habits. It's got to be about more than not doing the most natural things that all humans have been doing everywhere since the beginning of time. It's got to be about more than sexuality and lying and gossip and whatever else we were ashamed for our entire lives. The end of Romans 6 literally says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gospel is good news. It's life-giving news. And it does not shame. It does, however, call out the ways in which we are contributing to the dehumanization, the destruction, the erosion, extraction, violation, and murder of people and creation. It does demand something of us, that we participate in justice. When I look at my life and all the ways that the church and mentors taught me that I was being sinful, I now just see a wounded child who is deeply ashamed, but desperate for love and affection. We all just want a place to belong, a community that would love and accept us for who we are. There's desire for goodness within us. And Paul wants us to be able to look each other in the eye and say the brokenness in me sees the brokenness in you. The whole controversy in Paul's context is Jew versus Gentile, two demographics, various societal roles and values all converging into one space. And as we've been talking about for the past few weeks in Romans, Paul is seeking unity for the church. It's a diverse community that is supposed to not merely get along, but exhibit profound love and seek justice for the least of these. Going back to the meaning of justice and righteousness in this context, Paul is leveling the playing field. The system that enabled the rich and powerful to increase in their wealth and prominence, the system that kept the vulnerable and marginalized in such states, um, is being overturned. There is no longer a dividing wall between them. Justice pervades, and in being set free for justice, there's no space for an us-and-them mindset. The basic outline for this sermon in this text asks us the question, who are you loyal to? Where does your allegiance lie? Because we can't proclaim allegiance to the empire and to Jesus. They are profoundly at odds with one another. And Paul is inviting us into a new way of life. 
Walter Brueggemann uh, poses that this has been an issue throughout scripture, and he kind of takes us on a, a journey through some um, pretty key moments. Um, so in, in Genesis, Pharaoh, um, I think there's a picture for this. Yeah, that works. Um, in Genesis, Pharaoh has these dreams that there's going to be a, a terrible famine and Egypt will run out of food. And in his fear scarcity, he decides to appoint a food czar, someone who will distribute rations and control the food supply so that they don't run out. And who gets this position but a Hebrew man named Joseph? And Brueggemann argues that Joseph here aligns himself with the empire. He forgets who he is. He forgets his own people. So in Genesis 47, we read that when this famine arrives and food is scarce, um, the, then Pharaoh sells the food to the people for money. When all of the money runs out, he takes their cattle as payment. When all the cattle is gone, he takes their land. Without land, they sell themselves and they become slaves in order to survive and just have food. The only reason they become slaves is because of the economic manipulation. It sounds similar to some stories of people throughout our world today. We all know um, the Exodus story that follows after this. And in that story, Pharaoh is abusing and extracting from slaves who in turn cry out to God from their suffering. They engage in protest against this treatment, against this injustice. In essence, their crying out is what initiates the Exodus. It says that God hears their cries and he responds. And he says to Moses, I have seen their misery. I have heard their cry. I know their suffering and I have come to deliver them. But then he tells Moses, you will go to Pharaoh. It requires human agency. We know that after this story, the Israelites move out into the wilderness beyond the reach of Pharaoh. And what do they discover? Bread from heaven. There's enough for all people. And then they get the Ten Commandments. As Brueggemann puts it, the Ten Commandments are rules to prevent an economy of extraction. And it ends with the commandment, thou shall not covet. In other words, thou shall not extract wealth from those who are vulnerable. And we know right in the middle of the Ten Commandments is the Sabbath. There is no Sabbath under Pharaoh, under the empire. The empire keeps everybody busy. We're all consuming, we're all producing, and we're all just trying to get more and have enough, even if it costs somebody else something. And nothing's changed. On the next slide, you'll, you'll see, just look at these images, and you'll see how this has continued throughout human history, from cotton fields uh, plantations in America's history to factory slavery, um, that persists to this day so that we can all get same-day delivery on the things that we don't really need. Sabbath is a bodily declaration that we do not have to live according to the empire's norms. It's a protest against the economy of extraction. And this continues throughout the Old Testament narrative. Solomon is a man with more wealth than anybody. How does he get such wealth? Through things like charging people for protection and taxation, he also enslaved 30,000 Israelites, his own people. Solomon became Pharaoh. He acquires so much wealth at the expense of people. As Brueggemann says, great wealth depends on cheap labor. The Old Testament prophets are often protesting against this very kind of behavior, the kind of economy whereby rich um, abuse the poor. Groups of people are divided into greater and lesser Tax collectors in Jesus' day were part of this system. They abandoned their people for the sake of wealth, and then in turn they extracted, uh, they took from their own people. 
It's interesting then that Jesus spends so much of his time around tax collectors. And Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. So where does our allegiance lie? With the empire and the economy of extraction of wealth and abundance for ourselves? Or with Christ in the way of justice, of equality and unity? If you spent any reasonable amount of time around me, um, you'll know that one of my favorite theologians is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, I took a class all about him in my undergrad, and I'm pretty sure I annoyed like half of my friends and family during that class because every day I'd come home with like something new that I had learned and be like, guess what? I learned this thing. Um, and if I missed it, my brother would call me out for it. He's like, you didn't mention Bonhoeffer tonight. Like, well, in that case, I'll come up with something. But the reason why I'm bringing it up is because this is like the perfect sermon for Bonhoeffer, and I'm really happy to be able to say that. Um, but Bonhoeffer, like brief history overview, grew up in the white nationalist post-World War I Germany. And plagued by financial debt and global strife, Germany found itself in a state of rebuilding, both politically and reputationally. And because of this, many German citizens were eager for a return to a dominant Germany that refused to be oppressed by other countries. There was a fierce loyalty to the nation of Germany that pervaded their culture. And Bonhoeffer was part of that. There's even a German term called Volk, which was used to describe this loyalty. You can already guess how this becomes a problem in the future. Um, Bonhoeffer visited the US for a time um, to go to Union Theological Seminary, which he hated. He kind of critiqued it a whole bunch. But he quickly found himself involved with a, a black Christian community in Harlem called Abyssinian Baptist Church. Then it was there that Bonhoeffer said he found Christianity in America. And his theological perspectives shifted dramatically. Because much of America attributed a white skin tone and American ideals of masculinity onto the person of Jesus and used this to their benefit. Um, I think I might have said used to, but they kind of still do that. Um, but this white Jesus favored the strong and powerful white Americans. And the already belittled black community was disregarded, racialized, and oppressed as white America blossomed. And as they suffered the abuse and persecution inflicted onto them by the powerful white nation, the black community at Abyssinian Baptist Church found themselves seeking redemption and deliverance as they identified with Jesus Christ, who suffered and died at the hands of the empire. Bonhoeffer recognized that the distinction between black and white in America reflected his experiences in Germany and the belief in German superiority. His time in Harlem revealed the flaws of German nationalism. This would later become how Bonhoeffer understood the Nazi treatment of the Jewish people. And when Hitler and his regime rose to power, Bonhoeffer quickly found himself in the minority with his pacifist ideals for the church. He was caught up defying not only the Nazi government, but the German church. Many Christians, churches, and pastors signed on with the Nazi Aryan statement and the progressive violation of Jewish people. Bonhoeffer died protesting against this Nazi empire. Bonhoeffer taught and believed that the church's job was to preach at the government, revealing or calling them out for the ways in which it is upholding systems of injustice. Uh, Reggie Williams, an author, says in his book, Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus, that kind of tells the story. He says, evidence of a spirit-filled church is its activity. A live one is active, doing the work of God to relieve suffering in the community where it is located. A dead one does not concern itself with such things. 
So bringing this back to Paul and the Roman context, what's the point of Romans 6? It's to say that we who have died with Christ also share in his life the new thing where sin cannot exist. The injustice cannot continue. At one point or another, we've all bought into these ideas of the empire. But justice means rejecting or forfeiting that which benefits us at the cost of others. It means we ask questions like, where does our clothing come from? Who grows our food? We pay attention to this every time we do a land acknowledgement at the beginning of the service. This new life, this life in Christ embodies an active and that's a word, participatory response to the whole of creation. It does not devalue or extract from any part of it. And when we make space for the voice of the vulnerable and we seek the well-being of everybody, we are participating in ways of justice. Justice is emancipatory. It does not allow for the suffering to go on unnoticed. In Romans Disarmed, they say that Brueggemann calls this the critique of ideology that enables the public expression of pain. Or as one of my professors calls it, truth-telling. Again, Myers and Enns put it this way, the justice of God is found not in punishment, but in truth, reparation, accountability, and changed behavior. The goal of the cross is to redeem both victims and offenders from their dehumanization and alienation, and to empower both to embrace restorative practices themselves. So as we are coming to a close, let's read the rest of Romans 6. But this time we're going to replace the word righteousness with justice. And we'll see how it changes. I kind of made them bold on the screen so you can actually see it where it is. But um, yeah, Romans 6, 15 to 23. What then? Should we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means, Paul says. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as, as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to justice? But thanks be to God that you who are slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and that you, having been set free from sin, have become enslaved to justice. I'm speaking in human terms because of your limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to even more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to justice, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to justice. So what fruit did you then gain from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the fruit you have leads to sanctification, and the end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's way different if we read justice instead of righteousness. And Paul uses militaristic language of slaves um, to make his point here all the more profound. Romans were expected to make sacrifices to the emperor, including offering their own bodies. But Paul counters this ideology and says that we sacrifice ourselves and offer our bodies not to systems of corruption, but to Christ and to justice. We are meant to embody justice as we've been set free from sin. 
The text inquires, in what ways are we exploiting and extracting? Where do we still need to commit uh, to changing habits? Because a neighborly economy is the alternative. Think of things like the common cupboard or the garden. It's a gift. It's life-giving. The Eucharist, something we uh, celebrate or participate in every week here, speaks to this same economy. It proclaims that there is more than enough for everyone, and there is space for each of us at the table in an alternative economy. One final quote from Myers and Enns. They say, The prerequisite for our practice of restorative justice, then, is a critical understanding of how and why social power is unevenly distributed and a commitment to level that terrain in its own practices and self-organization. Without a deep rehabilitation of human dignity and social equity, restorative efforts will only be cosmetic. We are people of justice. We've been set free to embody it and make it manifest in the world around us. We aren't here to be shamed for our own little habits that we do. If that's all that the Christian life is about, then we seriously miss the point. If that were the, the case, yeah, we might have a bunch of people who appear to be holy, but none of us will have been living or doing what the gospel of Jesus proclaims. To be righteous is to work towards justice for the oppressed. Um, in close, I want to read a prayer from Walter Brueggemann, um, and then I'll, I'll pray uh, just generally at the end of that as well. Um, after that, Eric will come up and lead us in communion and and then we'll be moving on with our Sunday. But let me read this for you because I think it's profound and beautiful. It's called Reform Our Deformed Minds. I should have put it up on the, th the slide, but I did not. So you just have to listen. The words are familiar to us and we are filled with yearning. So we say them glibly, passionately filled with hope, liberty, mercy, freedom, release, grace, peace. We have some fleeting notion of what we must have in order to live our lives fully. And we have some wistful certitude that these gifts are given only by you, you with the many names, you, holy, merciful, just, long-suffering, forgiving, demanding, promising. We gather ourselves together to subsume our hopes under your rich names. We name you by your name, Harbinger of Liberty. Hear our prayers for liberty. We are mindful of those caught, trapped, held, imprisoned by, by systems of enslavement and abuse, by ideas and ideologies that demean and immobilize, by unreal hopes and ungrounded fears. We ourselves know much of unliberty, too wounded, too obedient, too driven, too fearful, be our massive way of emancipation, and let us all be free at last. We name you by your name, power of peace. He, hear our prayers for peace. We dare ask for the middle wall of hostility to be broken down between liberals and conservatives in the church, between haves and have-nots, between victims and perpetrators, between all sorts of colleagues in this place and in all those arenas besought with violence, rage, and hate. We know that we are not meant for abusiveness, but we stutter before our vocation as peacemakers. Transform us beyond our fearfulness, 
our timidity, our excessive certitude, that we may be vulnerable enough to be peacemakers, and so to be called your very own children. We name you by your name, Fountain of Mercy. Hear our prayer for mercy. Our world grows weary of the battering and the vicious cycles that devour us. We seem to have no capacity to break those vicious cycles of anti-neighborliness and self-hate. We turn, like our people always have, to you, single source of newness. Waiting, Father, in your mercy, receive us and all our weary neighbors. Remembering, Mother, hold us and all our desperate friends. Passionate lover, in your mercy, cherish all our enemies. Gift giver, in your mercy, embrace all those who are strangers to us, who are your well-beloved children. Make us all together new. Hear our prayers for liberty, for peace, for mercy. Form us in freedom and wholeness and gentleness. Reform our deformed lives toward obedience, which is our only freedom. Praise, which is our only poetry and love, which is our only option. Our confidence matches our need, so we pray to you. God, I thank you for this community, for each member here and each member not currently present. We thank you for the community of Bowness and the people who um, diversify it and make it beautiful and good. We pray for things like the common cupboard, that it would be filled with abundance, that everybody in Bowness would be able to not be hungry this weekend, but to, be met, to, but to be met with generosity and love. Thank you for our friend Marco and uh, the work that he's doing in Paraguay. Continue to bless him um, and his ministry there uh, and the people that he works with. We pray that justice would abound there just as it does and we pray for it to abound here. Bless us this Thanksgiving weekend, this Sunday as we move forward. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.